0: Welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co hosts are Mike Philbrick and Rodrigo Gordillo from Resolve Asset Management SEZC. And our special guest today is Atul Tiwari, CEO at CultWines Canada.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is
2: intended to be considered as advice.
0: Atul, welcome to the show. It's great
3: to have you.
2: Thanks for having me, Pierre and and Mike and Rodrigo. I'm looking forward to our uh, podcast.
3: So, Yeah, us too. It's probably one of the most favorite topics I have besides investing. When you can put wine and investing in the same breath, man, we're talking. I
2: love it. Love it. Very good.
0: Atul, for those of uh, for those of us who don't know you, uh, please tell us your story, uh, the story of your career, how you got your start in the investment industry, uh, where you've been, and what you're doing these days at at Cult Wines Canada.
2: Sure, Pierre. Um, so I, I'm a reformed lawyer. I used to uh, practice corporate securities law. Um, I worked in house at uh, at BMO as partners, um, and I was essentially running the legal compliance group in London, UK, uh, for a few years. And when I came back to Canada, I wanted to um, transition out of the legal world and uh, into the asset management world. So I was fortunate to. Get a role um, in BMO Asset Management, and spent a couple of years running the U.S. mutual fund business for BMO uh, out of Harris in Chicago, um, and then came back up to Canada. And actually, I was thinking about it today. Twenty years ago, uh, this summer was when I first pitched uh, the executives at BMO on BMO ETFs. I was quite passionate about uh, wow. ETFs and, and thought that's the future. Let's let's get started and. Um, uh, I, I didn't succeed on that first pitch, um, didn't succeed on the second one, but on the third one, um, I did. And so um, I was fortunate uh, as well there to lead BMO into the uh, the ETF business. Um, and I think uh, everyone's quite pleased uh, ever since that that, that happened. Uh, for BMO, I went on to Vanguard. So it was hard to start up Vanguard in Canada, which was a, a great uh, experience, seven and a half uh, years. And built a a pretty good franchise. We had 58 people or so on the team uh, when I left, and about uh, 30 billion in assets. So, um, a lot of time spent uh, in the ETF world. And uh, now I'm doing something different. Um, So, I I was always interested in wine, uh, quite wine passionate. Uh, Obviously, I love investments. And uh, I knew that there, was a a wine investing culture in Europe and Asia. And I was always curious as to why uh, this hadn't developed in North America uh, to any large degree. So I put together a business plan and researched who was the best out there in the world doing this and cult wines by far um, to me was the best in the world. So I reached out to them last summer and said, I was looking to start something in Canada. And we had some great conversations that led to uh, a joint venture. And, and we launched uh, a wine uh, management business, wine portfolio management business in Canada in April.
1: Wow. Awesome. Amazing. What a journey. And eh? so, yeah, you're, you're behind some of the, um, the BMO ETF magic. I did not know that. That's uh, it's, It was always odd to me how... And why BMO got into the ETF business as early as it did? It, it seemed way too entrepreneurial to <laughs> uh, to fit within that uh, BMO framework. But that's that's amazing.
2: Uh, well, you didn't, go ahead. Sorry, just uh, just hand it to um, the head of wealth at the time Joe Willette and uh, eventually, when we did make the decision, he had come down and said, "You know, I'm talking to a lot of advisors who are." interested in ETFs. And if this thing starts building, I'd rather lose assets to myself than to uh, a third party ETF company. So, you know, it was, it was good foresight on, on his part and, and the rest of the team as well.
3: Yeah. Blockbuster could have used some of that advice when when they took on Netflix. (laughs) Totally. So, so cult wines. Uh, let's, let's, let's back up. So you brought the cult wines, uh, concept to Canada specifically, but let's, let's talk a little bit before we jump into the specifics of that. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, wine, the wine market, uh, how that functions, this is such a unique market. And I think it's, it is topical at the moment in particular, because we have this, um, bringing this back to the global macro sort of framework inside of things when you have you know an excess amount of money printed whether that's for covid or or for building bridges that debasement of the currency causes the value of things that are rare hard to produce not easy to replicate it causes those things to go up in value um and that has not been lost on things like the art market and the wine market recently. And so we've seen a pretty robust, uh, reaction in wine markets. And this is not the first time this has happened. Like, the, you know, if you're making, uh, $10 a bottle of wine and, uh, you know, most of that $10 is, is marketing sales and fulfillment, you've got lots of of profit margin that you can give up in order to continue to facilitate selling $10 bottle of wine. that's that, that $10 bottle of wine is not going to go up a lot in price. You might cut a little bit of an edge here and there on the production. You might up the advertising, but at the end of the day, that type of asset is not going to appreciate. However, a, you know, left bank Bordeaux has a limited supply. There's a limited amount of land there. There's a limited amount of wine that's going to come out of that region. And that wine region has, you know, hundreds of years of demonstrated expertise in producing wines that are, and I am a wine elitist. I I have these discussions all the time. So let me just declare that I'm a wine elitist and the best wine comes from France.
1: Okay. So when you mean the left bank, you don't don't mean like Israel and Palestine, you mean (laughs) like you know, so please, no, I, I will no, help, no. help the audience navigate the landscape. Rod, just it. <laughs> 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 All right, audience. You're going to need to Google it. Okay. So left Bank, France. So you're just kind of talking about a specific
3: well-known well, Bordeaux. Well, we have rare areas of the world, the Bordeaux region that produce really exquisite mm-hmm. wine. And that wine is rare. It's like the Mona Lisa. It's, you know, there's not a lot of it. There's a certain amount of it that comes of the region. So when you get into... Um, um the 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 debasement of a currency, it's quite likely that those rare assets will do better than sort of your $10 wine. And so I'm I'm wondering what what what's been the journey? What's how how are the wine markets functioning? Maybe take us back a step, cult wines, talk about the futures and how that process works a little bit. I know I've put a lot on the plate there.
2: Yes, lot you. But over to you. Uh... Sorry. Great. No, I'll, I'll, try to, I'll try to answer all those questions. Um, maybe I'll just start really quickly with CultLines. So CultLines was founded in 2007 by uh, our global CEO, Tom Gearing, and his father, Phil, in the UK, and has grown to now have six offices around the world, um, including Oregon, Shanghai, Singapore, uh, and New York recently, and, of course, Toronto, um, so 300 million in assets which we think is the largest portfolio management uh, company in the wine space so that gives us scale Um, and we have a little over 70 employees globally so uh, a a pretty good operation Um, in terms of you know how does it work um, I'll I'll just talk maybe a little bit about what you said Mike, which is it's it kind of comes down to a very simple Equation of supply and demand. So, we all remember uh, economics in a uh, university. And basically, fine wine works right alongside that principle. So, we estimate that out of the $450 billion worth of wine produced every year, probably about 1% would be considered investment grade. So, that's about $4.5 billion every year being produced. Um, So right away, you've got a bit of scarcity in, in in that number. And then you look at how the market works and it's very fragmented. So one producer may have a number of different distribution channels through which to sell their product. Um, and then they have to, if they're a global player, think about their brand and distribute across a number of geographies. So when you get wine into the hands of the uh, consumers, again, it's pretty fragmented. And if you've tried to get some of these uh, great labels, um, you may find that you're on a waiting list. You may not get any, or you may get allocated to if an agent is uh, feeling good about um, your business that year, you might get a few balls allocated to you. So the opportunity there for a company like Fault is the the fact that it is a very fragmented uh, market globally and quite frankly it's it's fairly opaque at that level um so there's a lot that we could do to make it more accessible and more transparent which is what we're doing um, so that's a, a little bit around how the market works and for us again because of our scale we tend to have greater accessibility and relationships with producers and in the UK, we will actually be agents for a number of the iconic names. So we do get direct allocations into that market. Uh, The the futures market that you talked about, Mike, isn't in the classic securities sense, or rather, um, as you know, what we're doing is uh, investors or consumers are buying wine that is actually still in the barrel. So Bordeaux runs a very big campaign. In fact, we're sort of right in the middle of it right now. Um, and you'll buy a future, which essentially entitles you in two years time to receive the delivery of the physical, uh, all of life, um, you know, in, your, in, our, in our case, in your investment account. Um, and you get a lot of left banks. And this uh, current 2020 vintage is is being really touted as a right bank uh, vintage year. So yep. you can also focus on that year.
3: So, so just so I understand that you're buying both th- banks. So yeah, sorry. Uh, it's called it's called um, mm-hmm. on premier yeah. on what uh, that on premier's market right. is called i am I'm I'm not,
1: little, not, I'm not little, I don't have um, so so just so that I understand in terms of the futures market this is an over the- counter futures market where you're buying directly with the is there's no this is not in the CME or anything like that is there cool. so you're just literally yeah, buying yeah. future interest in a lot um, and then when you get it, you can either I guess can you is it a fungible futures contract you can is there a market for us to to resell? What, instead of getting delivery? You,
2: you could resell, most people don't, uh, because really the idea is it's a bit of art and science as to how pricing is set. So when you look at last year, 2019, uh, the 29 vintage, 2019 vintage at um, you know, it was being released right as COVID was taking root across the world. And so the wine producers essentially reduced prices about 25 to 30% from where they probably would have priced had COVID not struck. And so what we were interested in seeing was, okay, now we're a year in, what are the prices gonna look like for the 2020 um, on premier futures? And so it seems a bit of analysis and we do our old work around, is there quality for the price? what we think things will come out at, what they should come out at, and then we look and see what they come out at and then make recommendations to our clients as to which ones we think are, are valued buys um, and which ones, quite frankly, are not. The, the good things for the investment industry of wine is that the wines are being pr- priced off for a lower base of 2019 um, coming into 2020.
3: Right. There's a
1: nice little base effect there, yeah.
3: And and um, uh, I think another thing, so one of the advantages, Rod, you're buying this uh, wine when you're buying a futures, it's literally in the barrel. It hasn't been bottled yet. And so you're going to get, you know, bottles of wine and it's, you know, largely you get some sort of discount for that 20 to 30% discount by buying it. As a future, rather than bottle.
1: Yeah, you're taking the risk. What is the risk classic, you take? Uh, classic interest the risk time. from going from barrel to bottle, as well as the risk of it being received poorly. So nobody's tasted this wine, right? I'm sure there's insurance. Maybe I got the first part wrong. There's, I'm sure there's some sort of insurance if it all goes
3: badly. No, nobody. they they, they there has been about no okay. tastings of the wine. So the the winemakers are are deep in the cellar. They're rolling those barrels over. They're taking their little, you know, tools out. It's like that but, And so there's already an indication of like the in
1: their quality, t- and I'm yep. sure it comes to similar tasting wines yep. and what they should go for as you're heading as you're going to buy the future.
2: Yeah, that's right. And,
3: yeah, you you also know the weather, right? You know the rainfall and you got. Right both during the winter and during the harvesting season and, you know, the, you know, the heat units over the summer that were there to create the sugar, the wine. And then you've got, you know, the, the uh, technique of the winemaker, if it's a, you know, Bordeaux region that can blend and whatnot. I
2: would Uh, also echo what Mike said. So some of the critics will have tasted barrel and released some initial scores. And so it, it, it gets, even more involved in terms of our analysis. So we do have data scientists. We do have predictive analytics that we use as an input in the investment management process. And as Mike said, you know, we have seven balls and one of them includes weather. Right. Um, you know, what's the weather been like in each region over the course of the, the growing season. Um, so that is just one other input into quality which therefore translates, generally speaking, into price appreciation, right? Uh, So your risk, obviously, is that when the wine does get to bottle, uh, it may not meet the expectations of the market. It may not meet the critic scores, and they can regrade it, uh, potentially regrade it down once it's in bottle. Um, And uh, the other part is that the initial pricing by the producer might have been too high. Yeah.
3: When do you know that? When do you know that, that pricing in the, in the, in
2: the, Oh yeah. When do you know it? Um, it just, it's through The, uh, on premiere season we'll call it. So, um, the first price was released. I'm going to say about a month ago. And, uh, it was, it was a a good price in Chabot Blanc. Which uh, you'll you'll be familiar with from Bordeaux, of course. Um, and this is a this is a wine that's uh, scoring right now, you know, quite well ninety seven and ninety nine um, points. And it was released at only two point five percent higher than last year's release price. So we thought, great, that's excellent value. And then various houses release over the course of those next few weeks, and they're still releasing. So. Uh, yeah, we keep an
1: eye on it. So the risk there to the investor is that it goes, you, you have, you buy the futures based on whatever analytics. And then one of those variables goes wrong, which will always happen. You can't get it right all the time. And, and you end up getting paid, you prepaid, and now you get a box of wine that is 20% lower than market. And so your options there are, this is where I get kind of confused with the wine market, because generally speaking, fine wine ages like a fine wine. It just gets better over time. So it's almost like you just need to wait or I guess, uh, the other option is to, to sell it and go with a better, uh, lot that's coming up. So is that kind of like, you could buy, you could buy a lot that's underwater for 20% and kind of know that it's going to appreciate over time. Is that kind of the idea?
2: I I think that's fair to say. When you're talking about Chabot Blanc, I mean, it's an iconic uh, wine. Um, You know, over time, it will appreciate. Uh, There's no doubt whatsoever. And um, so you're right. And we do. Therefore, our program is, for an investor, is separately segregated managed portfolio of wine. So in other words, you own the wine. It's your physical asset. It's segregated, it's ring-fenced, it's yours. So as an investor, you can choose to give us discretion to manage that account for you. You can choose an advisory account so that we consult with you on every buy or sell. Uh, or at any time, you can take possession of that wine. So uh, you have a few options there. And what we recommend investors do from a, a, a duration standpoint is... If you're in it for investing, you should give us a minimum of three to five years per position, ideally five years. So that smooths out some of those issues, um, Rod, that you're talking about. And when you look at the economics of wine, it tends to, this is generalization, but it tends to appreciate for those first sort of five to eight years, and then it plateaus for a period of time, and then consumption takes away supply, and then it, it does oh, again. Interesting, of course. Well, flat- so you've got to keep watching your positions because there's no reward. You got to separate your wine drinking mind from your wine investing line. So there's no reward to holding on to a wine too long from an investment perspective because there'll be a point where the risk reward is going to get too high. You don't want to hold the wine too long and have it go. anywhere on you. Um, so. We, we are very careful to make sure that we're making the calls at, at the, what we believe to be the right plateaus, where we think that your risk reward is now at the stage where you should exit the position. But let's say it's a wonderful Chevelle Blanc from a great year. We say 15, 20 years out, let's sell. We sell it. And the buyer, who's a wine drinker, might say, gosh, I can, you know, this is great. I, in 10 years, I'm going to drink this. Right. So, so to keep that in mind. So, so
3: this is, this is a, a great point. Who are the market participants? Because you can see this actually functioning like a, the, the initial futures market is there. Great. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm buying a future. So I am allaying some of the concerns for the, for the wine manufacturer. They get some of that wine sold and off their books, capitalizing their future production then then i buy it but then i'm going to sell it maybe who am i selling it to a restaurant tour potentially another wine collector someone who's going to have a great wedding and wants to have the Chevelle there at the wedding like who are the participants that are that have the predisposition to want to buy the wine as it traverses uh, upon
2: its sort of conveyor belt of uh, right, age right. So, and i should say you know the futures um, portion of our inventory is it, it's not. I mean, I I don't actually know off the top of my head. But I'm going to say it's probably about ten to fifteen percent. So it's it's not a large percentage. So a, a lot of our wine is is already bottled and sourced from producers. So, um but to answer your question in terms of the market and you know everyone else laughs when you say liquidity with wine, <laughs> but uh, the uh, the liquidity uh, aspect of it, other than being able to take possession at any time and drink it is um, uh, is is quite interesting. So for us, the profile of our investors, I'd, I'd say, generally are emerging high net worth, high net worth, right. or ultra high net worth. And so we have twenty five hundred clients globally. Um, and the first place we look when we're exiting a position is within our own client base. Um, so. It may be that you're an investor in the UK, you're holding Lafitte 2000 and you say, now's the time to sell. Well, we've got a lot of buyers in Hong Kong or Shanghai who would be very happy to take that case of Lafitte into their uh, portfolio. So the first place we would look is there. Secondly, uh, we look to merchants. So we have a lot of relationships, large merchants, Many of whom you'd probably know if, if you've called in the UK and, and uh, from your your know, around some of the wonderful wine stores there. Um, so merchants. And then the third, which is very fascinating, something I knew a little bit about, but I've learned a lot about in the last uh, year, is there's a stock exchange for wine. And it's called LiveX. So uh, in the UK, in London, uh, there is uh, a market in exchange for fine wine and it, it serves a lot of really good purposes. With my lawyer hat on when I was doing the due diligence, obviously as an alt, you want to make sure that there's a good way to price these, these bottles, these cases. And the great thing is we use LiveX pricing. So we've got an independent third party. And as a client, you log in and daily see your updates on the valuation of your wine as indicated through the trading of the day at LiveX. There's uh, over 500 merchants. It's not open to individuals to be members, but there's over 500 global merchants who are members of 5X trading these positions. So that's the other place where we can go for liquidity. And um, we have gotten into the issue of um, uh, costs and returns and all of those things, but we don't charge clients on the exit. So when you sell your position, there's no charge to the client, there's no commission. So, we we go through those avenues, and if there is a cost to to liquidate through the LiveX, we'll eat that. Uh, but uh, but the, the the great thing there is, again, you get independent pricing, and unlike a number of alts, you, you can you can exit if you need to. Right.
0: There's That's an auction. Uh, it's not. There's it's it's by no means an arbitrary pricing of of the wine, and and it's not an auction. It's not to the highest bidder. It's I mean not in the old fashioned sense of an auction, but in terms of having an exchange, you have, a, you have an ongoing uh, pricing mechanism that you can refer to. I wonder
2: how many people That's actually right. know so, that. You know, as a, yeah. <laughs> well, as a client, you would know that. Yeah. Because, uh, we'll, we'll let you know that right people every there. day on your statements, which is great. Um, so you get a really good sense of where the market is valuing your position. What we don't do is we don't right. sell through auction. So, um, um, and, and the, the main reason for that is that when you sell through auction, you will be subject to much higher commissions. Um, and so for us, it doesn't make a lot of sense because you may get a bump up in value maybe, um, but it may not equal the commission paying and you may not. Equal
1: yeah. So that's interesting. My so, wife uh, worked for many years at an auction house in Toronto. And I do remember having conversations about the wine auctions and how Irrational; those particular auctions gone right. You can see, you always get a couple of wacky players willing to bid up things at exorbitant rates, and um, oftentimes it did offset the large commission that the auction houses had. Not always, but of course, you know it's it's always the most irrational place to be in terms of uh, of buying, right? When you're there in the heat of the moment, we've all done eBay auctions. We know how it is.
2: Yeah, it's It's great. Yeah. It's like art, right? What's the value of the value to you? <laughs> okay, well, hold on. Why? Yeah, but I guess that
1: question is: has it, it has, is it uh, generally speaking, the commission? Uh, I know it's hard for big, things to outweigh the irrationality? Is that what
2: you guys have found? Yeah. Um. Yes. <laughs> and it's funny. My wife worked uh, at Richie's Auction House as well. Okay. They're
1: my my wife probably knows your wife. She was at Richie's. Mm-hmm. Yeah which probably would
2: that yeah, back, yeah. Back, back in the day. Uh, so when she started in art and went over there. Right. The okay. Wine. Well,
3: yeah. So, uh, and on that point, I mean, it, it's hard not to get really excited about, about wine as an investment on a couple of different angles. One is the, you know, sort of the initial rareness of the production stream. The other is that, that emerging, uh high net worth class or, you know, call it uh medium high net worth even, because you can enjoy some of these bottles of wine on special occasion and things like that. Even, even, you know, if you're, if you're sort of, uh, you know, sort of the general high net worth or you want to call it that. Are you, where are you saying so? So I'm assuming there's restaurants, there's merchants, there's the wine resellers. Um, but the, the thing that it fascinates me as a potential burgeoning area of growth has got to be, or what's your opinion on the emerging market and the wealth that's accruing, whether that be in Latin America or Asia or emerging um, Europe, are are you seeing the sort of um, of replication of the European habits and the fondness for fine wine? Are, Are they replicating that Western feel and are you seeing you know uh, outsized demands coming from those areas and if not there where where are you seeing some some yeah
2: great question um in the market just like any other good i would say luxury good wine wine that's sort of in that profile like save and um at the media net worth stage you can splurge on a a bottle or a case and and enjoy that so um to answer your question yes uh we see a lot of demand from Asia, and uh, Colt Lines, as I mentioned, started in the UK in '07, and I believe it was 2015 when Colt opened its first Asian office, and now we have three. So you do see um, a lot of demand from regions or countries where traditionally they might not have had as established the wine drinking culture as the UK or North America. And so that is definitely a large source of new business for us. Um, And there's another element. I thought this is what you were going to ask me, um, but there's another element in there as well, which is in some regions, there's a tradition of investments, which are sometimes also viewed as trading. Um, and so, we do have uh, purchasers in Asia who will um, set up accounts with us, and ultimately view them as trading accounts. Um, so it becomes uh, you know becomes a business for them in their own jurisdiction, let's say. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite interesting to see uh, that not only geographically, but also from a network standpoint as as more people around the world increase their wealth, they do tend to venture into things like learning about wine, wine appreciation, join fine wine. So the market's constantly growing as far as
0: it was so interesting guess, to see. Yeah. I'm just going to go that it, it was interesting to see that uh, Bernard Arnault is now the wealthiest person in the world at north of Jeff Bezos and, uh, you know, uh, as the chairman of LVMH. Um, and a big component of that, of course, is fine, fine champagnes and uh, fine wines. And and as part of that, that, just to go back to what Mike was saying uh, about the demand, the thirst for luxury and luxury brands, uh, wine sort of falls into that category, doesn't it? it it's, it's coming into that category of fine automobiles and fine clothing and fine wines, um, that the emerging emerging wealth in the world is hoping to uh, partake in. So, not not a big surprise to see Bernard Arnault become the wealthiest individual. It was a surprise to me, but uh, you know that that he sort of snuck up from nowhere. And you know, relative to Jeff Bezos and and Elon Musk, but Elon Musk sort of came out of nowhere as well. I guess in the last year, but I thought it was interesting that LVMH is what propelled him to to that status
2: yeah i i agree they have a nice portfolio of uh and wines as you know um and and that is all part of the 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 brands that they have you know under under their uh, care and ownership so um absolutely it's a it's it's been an interesting um ride to watch that i mean i think they switch every week don't they that's three or four people up there at the top but um but the other the other interesting thing I'll mention in terms of emerging markets um so we talked about the the size of the fine wine market Uh, one of the interesting things has been in certain wine producing countries to see that there are some wines now being deemed investment grade so uh in Chile especially um and I also find this funny, but talking about Germany and Spain as emerging markets when their 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 history of winemaking goes back so far, but um, but they are considered emerging markets. Um, when we look at some of the wines that are being produced now, uh, because of better technology, better methods, um, more sustainable practices, you're seeing wines being produced that are spectacular from these regions. And so there's a few names in uh, Chile that have seen, you know, hundreds of percent run ups over the last few years. So it it is interesting to watch that because we will, we do have good relationships with some of those producers. And therefore, you know, when you're thinking of traditional portfolio, portfolio allocation, uh, if you're interested in growth, there will be asleep that we would actually look at with you that would include some of those names.
3: Sure. You've got your Johnson & Johnson in your blue chip, which is your Bordeaux. And then you're going to get your, uh, you know, venture capital, um, COVID curing, uh, um, something or other that's going to be the, you know, the 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 non, the Chilean upstart who is not an investment grade but moving to an investment grade the scrappy upstart really yeah exceptional returns mm-hmm. there so so let's let that, like I mean that, I think, I think one of the wineries I watched that happen to was was uh, Camus you know Camus went from you know in, in my lifetime went from a you know an obscure wine to you know having some investment grade I, I don't even know if it's investment grade but some in, incredible options
1: you know i just had a question let's talk about the portfolio you mentioned uh every you know you're you're uh providing
3: a yes sure. okay, before we go yep. to the portfolio rod before we go to the portfolio i want to come back to Because this is pre portfolio, right? So you've got to assemble a portfolio. But how are you going to dissect the wines? And you you remember us having the conversation about Orly Ashenfelter, Doctor Orly Ashenfelter from Princeton, in the book Super Crunchers. Remember he had that that um, the formula, you know, sort of winter rain uh, plus I think it was heat units in the summer minus uh, harvest rain equals you know this thing, and and it had a really great predictor of what the, what the vintage years were going to be. And this is going back to 1990. I think he published this and it gained steam through the nineties. So you have this way. So an algorithmic way. So we're, you know, as you know, we're quants, we do everything quantitatively. So we like quant, quanti stuff. So we have that initial, you know, thing that happened 30 years ago. So we got one, how do you, how do your algorithms sort of, deviate from the market prices. How do you spot sure. opportunities? Yeah. And then I think exactly. the next question is how do you build the portfolio? So maybe maybe talk a little bit about about the algos and what you guys do and where where you guys see the divergence maybe in, in your algos versus what the market prices. This percent. is like uh, this is like moneyball for wine, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. You, you betcha <laughs> love it exactly. I love that. that. Well set here. Ash was absolutely that super crunchers, yeah. I think came out of, you know, yeah. uh, sort of the money ball interest back it. in the, yeah. yeah.
2: It's very interesting. He uh, obviously created quite a stir with the wine world. And I think, uh, I heard some names that Robert Parker called, in fact, I'm not going to repeat those here, <laughs> uh, but, uh, all of that said, it, it, it is kind of an interesting formula to, um, that, uh, that he came up with Ash and Um, Yeah. You know, we, we have a lot of inputs. Um, and so you, there are a lot of factors obviously that influence uh, the price of wine brand producer history, vintage scores, you know, credit scores, um, when are retastings scheduled, uh, you know, just, you can go on and on and on. Um, and so, you know, we, we, um, have a lot of those inputs that we're put, that we put into our models, right. That they kind of help us identify where we think the, the market is presenting an opportunity. Um, the other part is, as I mentioned, you know, going straight to the producer, we're able to negotiate pricing as well. Right. So, um, we have an idea of where we think market is and, and if with our scale we're able, we're able to, um, negotiate better pricing, then, you know, we have, an advantage that we can pass on um, to our clients as well there. Um, So the, the quant side is quite interesting and and yes, it's an important input, but we also have a qualitative side so that with our relationships with the producers, with our buyers on the ground in all the major wine regions, we're constantly talking to the different people in the ecosystem to uh, understand how the vintage is going to be, you know, what percent of supplier or producer is going to release to the market now? What are they holding back? Um, so that there's a lot of those sort of qualitative factors that we consider as well. And then the final piece of it is the macro piece. And in that piece, it's important to keep an eye on factors like tariffs um, and very interesting. You can go back and look at when the Trump administration put the 25% tariff on because of the Boeing Airbus dispute. There were various wines in France and uh, England um, and and I think Germany that were impacted um, by the tariffs. And for some reason, the administration exempted champagne. Um, So what you saw after the tariffs was Bordeaux coming down in price because American buyers weren't buying the same quantities, but Italy and Champagne going up for two years. And so it's, there's there are those factors you need to consider as well. And right now China has tariffs on Australia. So uh, you need to watch the, the price prices of the, the iconic Australian wines because China is a big buyer of Australian wine. <laughs>
3: load up on the Grange,
2: right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That's a wine that you could, you know, hold sometimes for 40 or 50 years um, for drinking. Uh, But, uh, but, so those are all factors that we'll consider when we get together as an investment committee, and also that sort of feed into our informational systems when we're deciding, you know, where our portfolio allocation benchmark is going to be. And, you know, as you said, which wines would still be the blue chips and what should we be considering uh value? Right. Small cap.
1: So on that, uh, so you, you're looking at the whole spectrum, uh, from small cap, mid cap, large cap, IE look, iconic names, up and comers, and then maybe some flyers. Um, how much liquidity is in that portfolio? If you, if I had a couple of billion dollars to send your way, at which point would you say, okay, that's enough. Let me figure, I mean, when, when I, send you a couple of billion dollars um what do you call it? <laughs> liquidity in that type
3: of it's wine portfolio. you get all the wine
2: um yeah i, I think you're asked maybe you're asking yeah. two questions one is capacity and, and, and the other liquidity perhaps um yeah so capacity it's a good question i mean you know we're at Three hundred million, and, and our goal is to get to one and a half billion in the next sort of three to five years, probably five years. So we think that we can manage uh, that amount. And um, there are, in my view, there are two two hurdles that's called or issues that you need to solve for in order to get to that size. One is access and supply, so that's where all of the work that we're doing with producers and um, continuing to develop those relationships, developing relationships with um, producers in these up and coming regions. And by the way, also the emerging markets sort of sleeve of your portfolio could include um, new producers in Burgundy that are, uh, you know, might have been making wine at a particular producer have now struck out on their own and are getting good reviews. And it's still early, so you can still kind of get in at reasonable, Just like a
3: hedge fund business.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, so that's, that's part of, um, that's part of the equation. The other part is the liquidity as, as you pointed out. Um, And so again, I'm personally not as concerned about the liquidity side as I am the supply side and on the liquidity side. Again, as we keep increasing our number of private clients and um, again, it's just, it falls right back into that supply and demand equation, where there's going to be uh, an outlet for people who want to exit, um, and hopefully with demand increasing, you know the exit prices are going to be um, ones that we want to see for um, the lines that we're, we're getting our clients' uh, portfolios and building them with. Um, so the the, um, the the you know the other thing I think we've estimated there's about in u.s dollars about 20 billion worth of wine uh, being held in storage globally for investment purposes so there are obviously other investors Um, and then if we got to the secondary market uh, we estimate it's about 7 billion turnover uh, per year so um, you know there's there's avenues for liquidity that at this stage we aren't accessing. But in terms now, of the
0: uh, bottle market, a tool. How much competition are you facing in getting a worthwhile supply of your, you know, desired
2: bottles? Uh, yeah, you know, it. Um, I'd say we're we're growing in our ability to uh, s- secure. The bottles and supply. Um, it, it's been very interesting when I worked on my initial business plan. Part of the plan was to set up a, uh, a capital fund to actually buy the uh, to, to buy wines from producers. Because if you think about it, during the first part of COVID and, and probably still now. Uh, a number of producers, as well as agents, were tied to restaurants. And um, restaurants just weren't buying their allocation right, like they, they had in the past. And what that did was it prompted a number of producers, as well as agents, to realize they need to develop their uh, e-commerce business as well as their direct-to-consumer or private-client business. And so the the, the thought was to speak with producers about buying allocations, but then guarantee that we'll buy the same amount or more for the next four to five years. Um, so this is a way to help out producers because they're um, getting some certainty in terms of cash flow, uh, vis-a-vis sitting on inventory till market conditions are better. And on the flip side of it, as I've said, a lot of producers that we're, we're speaking with have realized that there is value in having more distribution through the private client network and fortunately for cult uh, because of our relationships that we've you know developed over 13 years um as well as people come in like myself we've got some relationships in france um oh, and we're able to kind of have that rapport with producers and hopefully continue to increase the allocation that uh, that we get um, so that that's that's so clearly
1: this right. is an idiosyncrasy so go ahead, Mike.
2: So, so in this, na-
1: uh, clearly this is an idiosyncratic yeah, uh, asset class with unique variables, timelines, you know, when to drink, when things peak, how the liquidity works, when putting together a thoughtful portfolio, what people are looking for is for that to show up on their statements, right? Things that are zigging when the other things are zagging. Have you guys analyzed the correlation of wine or your wine portfolio to traditional and non-traditional asset classes? How does it fare?
2: Yeah, um, we have. And I can speak mostly to equity. So um, like a lot of classes, you classes, know, one of the benefits of it is the non-correlation um, or I should say low correlation. So uh, the, the numbers that we've done, we use the LiveX, 1000 index as our uh, comparison to the S&P 500 to the TMX composite and it, you know speaking broadly over the longer term so longer term being 5 10 15 years the correlation to the S&P 500 is is very low about so 0.08 and the correlation to the um, uh, the composite the, the TMX comp is a little higher it's about 0.28 ish, uh, so still low correlation, but more correlation sure. to the, you know, to the commodities-driven exchange versus the S and P 500. Um, so you can really show the benefits of of um, uh, correlation or low correlation to your portfolio. And um, the other, you know, a couple of other merits I just talked about is low volatility, again compared to the S and P 500. Uh, Over the five year period. So, as measured by standard deviation, be about 4% versus 14, 15%. And so that's another uh, real advantage. And then finally, we may have talked about the look of that capture, but if we didn't, um, you know, part of Greg, part of the mechanics of the market, again, in terms of who the buyers of these wines are, um, you see that. When there are markets of uh, equity crashes, flooding wine uh, barely budgets. So you know, during the GFC period, um, we, we saw for the year SP 500 coming down 38%, and the LiveX 1000 came down less than 1%, 0.6%. So, um, you know, a lot of the buyers certainly are clients. They're not, they they might have, be panic drinkers. That's why there's yes. so much, uh, uh
1: there's a lack of supply. Break to for lack for depression led by recessions.
3: Uh, yeah. <laughs> alcohol and cigarettes, <laughs> things you in depression.
2: The, uh, uh, right. The, you know, it's, it's taking a long term and, and it's a classic asset to, to have that view. And if you have the ability to withstand, some of the volatility that you see in the equity markets and hold. So you're going to be better off. Who
3: do you think, who do you think cult wines is, is sort of replacing as the buyer stepping into the market? Is it so, so certainly through COVID it's kind of interesting to see, okay, the restaurants were not buying and, and then people were buying more for home consumption. Uh, but longer term, do you see the, the cult wine sort of uh, Market player or other groups like this one who are facilitating the investment uh, in wine growing, or are they going to replace the the wine shop opener? How, how do you uh, how do you see that that um, progressing?
2: Good question. I mean, you know, again, uh, with a lot of these wines, there is a lot more demand than supply. So obviously, that gets back to the. The access um, question. So um, it's really hard to to predict as to you know how that pie is going to get cut up uh, in, in five years time. For example, um, that said, you, you know, in terms of competitors, more in the investment space. Again, there there would be competitors in Europe and Asia, in North America, uh, not so much in an organized way, uh, but. Very interestingly, what we are seeing in the U.S. is there is a a growth of essentially wine robo advisors. So there's a a couple of reasonably uh, well-backed platforms that have started up. And and I would say they're probably a little more geared to millennials than to our um, traditional client segment. And um, quite likely not as well organized from an investment perspective. As, uh, as Colt Wines is just over the years having the history of the track record. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it could be that that's an area that's going to grow and that that might be a whole new area of competition.
3: Uh, well, And the industry itself can grow as more participants come in and are willing to fund, um, you know, the development of really great wine that has the ability to be aged. Uh, you're going to see, you know, Chilean pro- projects, you're going to see Argentinian projects and as you say you're going to see infilling in in Europe where they've got great weather and great soil and and just um, doing more with it with the technology that's there.
2: That's right yeah when you look at um, when you look at the trading on the Livex so since 2010 Bordeaux as a share of trading has halved Um, and if you look at what's considered in the rest of the world category and this is the um Spain, Germany, California, uh, Chile, Australia, um, they've gone from somewhere around you know 09 percent to seven or eight percent, or nine percent of the market share. So you're you're absolutely right. You know we'll see more whites being considered tradable or investment grade as as time goes on as well.
3: The fading of the Bordeaux dominance.
2: Having said that, do you think there'll
3: be any other futures markets or any other on-premier markets that, that develop out of that? Something in Italy would seems to make sense also, um, yeah. even in in Rioja and Spain would. Yes, it's, it's possible. possible. They don't seem to have happened.
2: Also, there is a Burgundy on-premier um, mm-hmm. program as well, but uh, yes, I, I can see um, other ones developing and uh, one area of why that, uh, that I personally didn't know as well was German wine and old well, fact, there's a lot of really great German vegetable wine. The thing is a lot of it just never leaves the country because being it's in yeah. small quantities and they do, it's not a, it's not an premier program, but they'll have barrel auctions and, and some of these wines, yeah. total one barrel over two barrels. Didn't bite with I,
3: I find Australia like yeah. that. If you've been to Australia and you have a wine in Australia, you know that the oh, good really play in Australia does not leave that rock. Right.
2: so you know our our goal is <laughs> oh, really?
3: <laughs> really. really, really, really.
2: I thought the challenge is to to try to obviously develop relationships and access some of those slides as well that are already being made yeah. it's just harder to source.
3: Yeah. Or well, they, they become, they come in
2: such. Smart
1: so just thoughts. to be clear in terms smart of investing uh, liquidity. in the portfolio, it's not a fund. It's a, it's a, basically your separately managed account, right? You go in, and you say, here's, you have a minimum you, and you take people's money and, and corral off their wine somewhere in an undisclosed location with security guards, uh, yeah. there, when are you launching the BMO, the BMO, uh, ETF, the BMO fine
3: wine ETF? Deep in the mountain in Utah.
2: I'm sure it's happening like that.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. Not only <laughs> a matter of time
2: <laughs> to take your first question first up <laughs> yeah yes yeah, there's uh we we have um we have a storage facility it's the twenty eight thousand square feet and it's a, a former ministry of defense hangar uh in the u k and it's um there's a there's a third party called london city bond um and they run an incredible network of, uh, it warehouses all across the UK. So they warehouse. Um, they have two million square feet of warehouse, about eight million cases of wine, and so they run our facility, um, and we uh, we share it with some of the. Uh, there's another hangar that uh, some of large merchants use as well in the same space. So it's it's temperature controlled, humidity controlled, it's light controlled insurance, There's incredible security, of course. So, um, that's part of it. Yeah, insurance through marshall McClellan. Um, then that, that's our insurance called Warren's insurance. So those are the things you get when you invest with Colt. So, um, all of those logistics and, uh, the perfect storage and guarantees. is it duty free? This is all take. Is it, is it, is it a free zone? Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. Yep, when it's held, <laughs> no. it, when it's when it's held, in it.
3: No, when you bring it to Canada, it isn't.
2: <laughs> when it's held in bond, uh, there, there's no VAT tax rate. So that's right. Um, when it's taken out of bond, the VAT tax is applied for twenty percent tax, um, and there's no duties until it's taken out of bond that you have to um, take care of the duties involved. Um, so that's that's uh that's where it's stored and um, yeah, in terms of the wine e t it, f it's it's interesting um i i don't know uh, i i don't know that it's something that's easily uh, done and um from a hedging perspective like just having thought about how you can hedge something you'll pick that uh, all that said uh you know the interesting thing with my background in e t f s uh, the interesting thing was you know, finding a way to make the asset class accessible. Um, and actually it's an area where, you know, we've proven the value of active management. So um, it, it's, it's kind of a, a neat thing where y- you still have the opportunity with the analytics and with the relationships to outperform uh, the market and the indexes. So I think it's, it's a great area we can prove Very cool. uh, the value of active.
3: Now, one more question. We 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 do have to ask the question about the uh, you know the great wine fraud, the Rudy Kerwiniwani. I forget, can't even pronounce his name. His name is not going to pass my lips anyway. Uh, obviously, very large wine uh, counterfeit ring, and not easy to do. I mean, if you're going to have you know counterfeit eighty-two per truce, that actually takes some work because you can't bring that to the table and not have it taste like the eighty-two right. peratures. So there's. There's a an elaborate uh, um, uh, set of the things that you would have to do in order to counterfeit really fine investable wine. Um, so so it's, it's not that it's easy, uh, but obviously the financial reward is there too. So how how is cult wines approach that? How are you guys approaching that? I mean, certainly sourcing at source yourself helps, but is that exclusively what you do? You're only getting at source, or how, how do you how do you Hedge that particular
2: price? Right. Yeah. yeah, great question. Absolutely. So, uh, first off, the best way to avoid fraudulent bottles is to source directly from uh, producers. And so, you know, uh, a very large percent of the wines that we have uh, come from from the producer directly. So we're, you know, we're we we uh, are fully involved in the entire chain from producer to our um, storage facilities so that's number one number two is reputable merchants and negotiants, and so that's the second part of the relationship building is there are a number of brokers in the ecosystem um, and France and Burgundy are two good examples where the producer will use their brokerage system to distribute the wine and so that's the second place where we develop relationships and buy so you're you're one step removed from the producer, but you're really with the producer's agent. The third place is um, reputable agents. And so there'll be allocations made, obviously from these producers to agents in the u k or other countries that we have relationships with. so we'll we'll uh, buy allocations through them. Uh, the The last point is, um, where we might source from um, a, a relationship that we don't have directly but that we have very good uh, references for we have a, um, a risk profile system and we have authenticators at our facility so anyone that's coming in that doesn't fit our usual way which will be the first three ways i mentioned gets put through the risk profile and um, it, it will only be accepted into our storage if if we believe that it is real um and so we've uh the interesting thing uh about that is that we've got right now six hundred and fifty thousand bottles uh under our care under our management um and over the thirteen years that we've been operating, we've never had one complaint of a fraudulent bottle um and so that's uh, that's a record we want to keep. Uh, but uh, it's clear to our clients that if any fraudulent bottle were ever to make it through all of those screens, uh, our policy is we replace it if we can locate the same bottle uh, in the market or we credit uh, the client for the value, the then value of the wine. So, uh, you know, we take it very seriously and have been obviously uh, fortunate as well as um, because of so, so to you to do you that have that any
1: portion of your portfolio that is not stored in your facilities? Where you're buying um, a few lots in another facility that you trust or, or hope they're doing a good job? Is that does that work as well in your in your business?
2: Yeah, it it does. Um, you know, with those things, you're always very careful. Just like when we accept walls into our storage, we'll we'll need all the papers. Um, so we need to go right through. Uh, wh- where was it purchased when, who's held it in the chain of ownership? Where has it been stored? So, you know, all of those things need to be done. Um, the answer is yes, we could do that. And usually when you do it's from in bond to in bond and we'll have all of them, with details. Got
1: it. I think the blockchain would tell all, all these things. It's crazy
2: yeah. way to
3: do that. Well, it's, it's, I think, I think that there's some, there's reasons why certain industries don't. Do such like the diamond industry is also another industry that would do very well with that type of thing, and it's it's interesting, you know. Uh, the wine industry has moved more to a public market industry over the last twenty years, but it's you know it's a lot of art in there and a lot of differentiation in the. So
2: yeah, on that point, I mean, I can't get into all the details, but one of the things that attracts me or attracted me to call wines was um, just a vision for the global business and you know already being the leader in the space with a lot of room to grow uh we've we've got a, a number of projects underway and i you know i can i can say that uh, blockchain is figuring prominently in in uh, one of the projects um and there's a whole lot of, <laughs> right the cult there's work. a whole lot of great applications as you point out uh Rod, uh for blockchain in the industry and you know obviously developing the asset class plat- for us, it's a lot of it is meeting some of these issues right away in a transparent way. Right. And if we can improve the ecosystem, um, a couple of things. One is we think that as an asset class, obviously it gains more credibility and and we're, that's what we're here to do. Um, and secondly, quite honestly, it proves the value of our clients wise. Um, so if you can do something that makes the industry better and more transparent and increases the value of the wines that cult is involved with for your clients. It's a good thing. Yeah. Can you imagine on, uh, on Rodriguez?
1: Well, not only that, but yeah. you can also, you can have yeah. the wine yeah. you know, futures. You, know, you can have Might the, well, you know, uh, uh, the actual, uh, the the an actual portfolio <laughs> on that you create. Because one of the, one of the issues that we've discussed over yeah. and over again, Mike, is this, um, the rich, the boomers got rich. By buying very cheaply, low entry to the first purchase of a house, low entry to buying stocks and bonds. And they just average cost in in, uh, average cost or wine. Yeah, there you are. You got your wine selling all the wine. um, And so over time, they just kind of made money without even trying whatever, you know. I don't even know. Like you, you look uh, you actually look my age, you're got a a millennial? Or you're a geriatric millennial. I think I forgot that's what they call. Them.
0: Um geriatric millennial. <laughs> yeah. So so the uh,
1: uh, geriatric, uh, ex-er. the issue now is I'm that people my age geriatric. or younger that want to <laughs> get into this uh <laughs> in, in, into this the uh, wines or diamonds or houses or luxury anything is nearly impossible uh barrier to entry, right? So when you, if somebody's able to put that into some sort of uh, sh- sharded crypto market where anybody can own and participate in the growth of that, it would be fantastic. I think there's, there, I'm sure you've thought about it. You've thought about it, and it, it's it might change the landscape for and provide some hope for younger individuals like uh, like me.
2: So we. Um- We've come out in Canada with our first offer, which is um, Portfolio Managed. So you get an actual Portfolio Manager with advice and um, all of those great things. Uh, And the the, it's really good, it's $45,000. So it's, you know, it's it's accessible. But for, yeah, not bad, Um, but for people just starting out or, you know, who want to dip their toes into it a little bit slower. Uh, We will we're doing a brand refresh and we'll have a a new website and investment platform, which is going to bring together uh, two or three different systems right now that we need to bring together manually. So it's going to make our portfolio managers jobs a lot easier. Uh, But with that, we'll we'll roll out um, a product at the 15,000 to 45,000 level, which will be more automated. So uh, we're hoping kind of late summer to be able to roll that out. We've had a lot of people express to us that they're very keen to, to kind of invest in that fifteen twenty thousand 20,000 range to get started. So I think, um, to your right. Report, it's, it's like, it is like, I um, guess this is a, a
1: security, right? So it's not like accredited investors only. If you have the money and the inclination, you should be able to get access to this to your portfolio.
2: That's correct. Yeah. Um, um that's right. Now we would still do just like AML and all, we'll all that, that stuff, we'll do some KYC and ensure that you know the, the the portfolio yep and the portfolio that we're building you know meets your risk profile and your your time horizons and then so are say, you
1: registered as an advisor to, you know, or like a PM well how how does how do the, the, the regulators see you?
2: Uh we're not registered. We are we're not required to be registered. So uh, we're offering buying and selling of uh, commodity which is uh, wine. Um and right we talked about the futures it's not a commodity futures contract so there's no um, requirement for registration and that said you know we do have obviously internal controls and a finance and operations group when we do third-party rec- reconciliations and I talked about independent valuation so um, all of that is very important and again for me with my background uh, as well Coming in uh, uh, a lot of those um, boxes through due diligence for me, we're all check, check, check because it's uh, it's very important to have um, those internal controls.
3: What, what what's the key differentiation in the regulation that allows you to fall outside of you know uh, securities regulation just because they're not? Financed.
2: Uh, yes, it's it's not. Now you know if you if you created an investment fund structure, it would be a security selling.
3: Ah, so you separately managed God. A seat or you need to partner security resolved in order to provide
1: yeah, security. Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> um, here's another this is I know I love know, the, we're regular, hitting, regular, so the lines of this, but I'm curious you, you focused on lines and there are some sister spirits that exist out there and I don't know what their market uh, dynamics are. So you got the ports. Uh, you got the, the Armagnacs, the, the Scotches, the, all that stuff. So how, how does that world fit into your world, if at all? And, uh, if you, if you have any knowledge about, oh, yeah. they, they will come down in the same path as you someday, it'd be interesting.
2: Yeah. Good question. Um, the, 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 one sort of obvious area would be Scotch whiskey. Um, so the returns in, in that space have been very good. Um. You know, we've, we've talked a bit about it internally. I mean, our expertise is wine. Our relationships are wine. So we're, we're really focused on the fine wine area and we do have, we believe, you know, uh, a lot of uh, room to run. Um, but that said, one of the things where we have talked about scotch as well, though, is we, there's, there's not the same price discovery mechanism that we feel LiveX gives fine wine. So when you do kind of hear those headline numbers um, uh, uh, regarding Scotch and Scotch barrels and um, those those sorts of things, uh, a lot of them tend to come from auction and uh, maybe even private sales or what have you. So, um, you know, for us, unless there was a way that we felt more comfortable about the price discovery and valuations, it it just doesn't fit what we're doing right now. but well, that's not to say that it wouldn't and uh to be honest i don't know a lot about pork prices so i i don't know but what i will say is interestingly the stickies as uh as we call them in the wine world uh you know they're great wines but they don't they don't follow the same sort of um dynamics of fine red or fine white wine so uh, you might find even the greatest, some people will say it's the greatest wine ever made in, in the world, Chateau d'Echem. And it is an amazing, amazing wine. Um, but when you look at the prices, you know, they can kind of go all over the, the map. And um, uh, even if you look at auction prices for Echem recently, you might argue there's deals there if, if you're in that sort of snack bracket. Uh, so those the stickies are a little bit harder to kind of analyze and, and not as predictable.
3: Yeah, there's a certain reliability to the aging out of the tannins and the ac- the acidic nature of big red wines that come from grapes like Cabernet Sauvignon and Sangiovese and Syrah. There, there's there's actually a, re- a reliable degradation of the tannins, which then promotes that smoothness and and maturation of the wine, and it requires time. There is no no shortcut. It requires the wine to be laid at the right temperature in the dark for a number of years. And, you know, that, that's the vig that you're getting to put it down. That's what you have your own cellar. That's why you do that. How, because oftentimes when you want to go get that 1990 Bordeaux, it's not at the store. Like it can't be bought. It's literally not possible to buy it. And so you know, you're stuck uh, with this conundrum. So just like you say, uh, Rod, when you, when you talked earlier, oh, I bought the futures and then it turns out they were 20% too expensive. It feels like I bought Bitcoin in, in January. <laughs> now, maybe there's a maturation point now, that's probably a bad example, but you're, you're, you're buying something for a long-term, a long-term sort of return and part of that return comes from what is a structural evolution of the way a wine grows into its, uh, sort of optimal, enjoyable, uh, period after 10 years. And, you know, the price is higher at that point because there's less of it around. Some of it's been damaged, some of it's gone bad, some of it's been, um, uh, uh, consumed. And that's where you get that next price appreciation where, you know, the, the swarms of people who like to drink a wine prematurely. And else they shouldn't they. <laughs> they do. Um, yeah, it helps the pricing for the later wine because you know. The I feel like that was directed at me. Like, round, you know, that's exactly what I
1: would do. The next round of buyers get the life portfolio life. and start drinking the early wine.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I, I don't bring any. <laughs> so, uh, so just going back to stuff around for you, to using this as like a class as uh, portfolio <laughs> construction. <laughs> We it's not directed. We talk a lot in this podcast about rebalancing and, and non-correlation and putting the right pieces together. And rebalancing requires a level of, of liquidity. So let's say if I wanted to rebalance my portfolio on a quarterly basis, and it'll be a portion of that portfolio. How easy is it for me to, to buy a portion and sell a portion of my portfolio with, uh, with your company?
2: Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, you guys do a great job of the, um, the global asset allocation. And, um, obviously, you know, you take a, a, a really good holistic view of, uh, of appliance account, which is, which is, uh, excellent. Um, and in terms of, you know, rebalancing again, it, as we kind of talked about earlier in terms of liquidity, it would depend on, you know, it depends on the, uh, the dollar value of, of the wine that you want to move and at what price. And so, you know, that's where the benefit of working with a company like Coke comes in because we can have those conversations with you and, you know, we could agree essentially a reserve price and then we would go out there and um, give you an indication of the time frame for us to work that into the market, just like we would in other sort of small cap right. scenarios um, where you want to make sure that you're not having too great of a market impact, but you want to working in at the prices that you want to achieve. So we work together with you on that. It's no question. i you know, it would be on a case by case, but definitely. It's so good. Uh, yeah. It's so good. <laughs> this is that the, the area is rife with funds. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that's right. Um, so I, I would just say we could, we could work with you on it and we could do it. Um, it, it cool. just to, what, you have, what, what do you worry about could go wrong with this? Like what, what do, I mean, people
0: in the wine investing circles, what, what is it that keeps them up at night? Or what is it that, that they consider looking forward, uh, that, that they could head off at the pass what kind of risk management, uh, and what, what risks are you actually managing?
2: Yeah, I would say from an investment perspective, that's where our investment committee comes in. So, you know, we, we have a benchmark allocation and we try to have our portfolio managers uh, get to. You don't want to move everything too quickly. But again, like a lot of portfolios, if you have sort of a, a view of where things it will be in two or three years, it helps to kind of gradually get there. Uh, that So that said, you know, we, we we do that every quarter. And so from a risk mitigation standpoint right. in investments, like any other investment, we want to make sure that you're diversified. So even at the $50,000 level, you can be well diversified regionally, as well as within um, the types of uh, positions. Yeah, it's, it's a reasonable amount of line, right? Or 50. Um, so, so that would be one. The, the other ones I think we've talked about, and quite frankly, you know, we've mitigated to the best of our abilities storage, transportation, Wait. insurance, and um, ensuring there's no fraudulent belts. Um So to me, those are the risks. And we believe we've got the best procedures in the industry in place to, to mitigate each one of those. Um, and then after that, it's just, uh, you know, your, your ability to, to really manage the champagne part of your, your benchmark portfolio as well. It absolutely is. Um, And uh, again, when the Trump tariffs came in, champagne shot up like you wouldn't believe. And and the other interesting thing is through COVID, you know, the feeling was there's too much production of champagne and no one, people view champagne as a thing to celebrate. and There's nothing to celebrate. But, But champagne prices have held up very well. And for us, we, our view is, um, there's some good back vintage champagne uh that houses are releasing that we think there's there's value in and so we're we are buyers and allocators there um uh, as well as you know we've talked about the emerging markets if you're familiar with champagne there's a grower champagne movement um and some of these grower champagnes are outstanding at at prices that are a lot less than the iconic uh days. and so We've developed and are developing a lot of relationships with the Grovers. And that's the other place we would also to put clients into right now. What is your
3: top wine book recommendation at the moment for, for someone who's, you know, thinking about this, has thought about it, you know, what do you think is so
2: in terms of learning the best book, or, there now? Uh, just reading, leave it open. And... I'm going to leave it open. Interesting. Okay, um, well, I, I'm going to, I'm going to maybe just throw out two books. Um, if you're a serious wine person um, and want to delve deeply into a region that's my favorite, which is Burgundy, uh, I would pick up uh, this, book, this book right uh, on my shoulder, which I got from my wife for Christmas. It's called Burgundy Vintages. Uh, Alan Meadows, who, you know, Mike, you will probably know, is the, the wine critic um, mm. covering Burgundy. So, they covered all the vintages from 1845. But there's a lot of knowledge in there too about winemaking and you know storage and stuff like that so it's a great book. Um, just coincidentally or incidentally yeah uh, he wrote it with Douglas Barzilay who's a very well-known um, wine collector in the United States who has recently bought um, a vineyard on Vancouver Island um, called, I think it's called Foxtrot or Fox uh, Run or something like that. But uh, anyway, it's uh, supposed to be making some great Pinot. And uh, it's kind of neat that somebody who's so steeped in Burgundy, um, you know, thought enough of the wine from Vancouver Island to, uh, yeah. to the vineyard. So I'm, I haven't tried it. I'm keen to to, to try it sometime. Um, so that that's a, a really neat recent book for wine geeks. Um, just, you know, for interest sake. I would say for people maybe who aren't as into wine, um, one of my favorites is it's, 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 it's still an, a favorite uh, is called uh, the judgment of Paris. Um, and, and you're probably familiar with that. That was the the tasting that Stephen Spurrier put on in France for the U.S. bicentennial and um, the judges in France picked um, Californian winners. Um, and, and there's all kinds of, Controversy uh, after the fact uh, on that one, but uh, it, it truly was uh, a tasting that kind of redrew the wine maps. And although, you know, um, French wine still dominates on the investment side of things, you have seen, like we've talked about, you know, wines from Chile, definitely wines from California who've made inroads and continue to make inroads, but uh, it's a really neat book. Oh, he did. Uh, Unfortunately, Mr. Spurrier also passed. Police. So, Mike, is Spurrier the individual who kind of like it did, did, it, yeah
1: just to, it, uh, it had right. the rating system that led to the California Pinot to be a preferred wine, but it doesn't age well? Was this like the one that Raul Powell kind of rage against when comparing um, the California?
3: I think that's Parker, isn't it? Wasn't that yeah, Jared I mean, Marker?
2: That's Mr. Parker. So he, that seems to be to the one it, where it's so, you know, it's made
1: uh, a... spectator. Yeah. It's just become one. of. Yeah. Stuff. Anyway, that story to me was fascinating. But <laughs> it's
3: yes.
2: And, um, that, if you're interested in, in Robert Parker, there's a, a story, a book uh, called Robert the, Robert. the emperor of wine. And, uh, it's written, it wasn't authorized, although the, the author did spend time, I think, interviewing Mr. Parker, but it, it's a really interesting read. Um, mm-hmm. And when you think of, you know, you, you, whatever you think of yeah. Mr. Parker and his palette and his rating system, the fact is he moved markets um, and he was the person Who um, could influence up or down the price of almost any wine in the world? And you know, um, when you think of people in industries who you might point to and say, "There's the top person in that industry or that sport," um, you know, it's it's hard to kind of come up with a name like his uh,
1: (laughs) where where he can hold anything or could for all the uh, Uh, listeners. It's an interesting book. Best value under a hundred dollars right now for red, white, and champagne. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. Is that a back when Mike's looking at me like, "What did you just say?"
2: <laughs>
1: drink, drink. All right, what, what's have a what should, How should I reframe the question, there, Mike? You know what I'm trying to. <laughs> Two hundred. Have,
3: a... have
1: it. Have it. Okay.
3: My, my, well, it's going to <laughs> <the>, along the <laughs> same line. <laughs> along the same line was. What's the top and what's the, other uh, there aren't any, um, what's the top right. up and coming? Fair enough. It's <laughs> okay to Rod have a truly everybody else. Yeah. The, what's the top up and coming house?
2: Well, um, yeah. I, I don't know if there's a top up and coming house. That not, not the top, in your opinion, we
3: get what I don't, I don't want to give you make you give us a list of six. Weird. Just saying yeah. what, what's the outstanding sort of up and coming house. It could be a new region. It could be an old region. Like you said, they, yeah. they, these things yeah. are happening kind of in places you wouldn't expect. So, right. you know, just, uh,
2: yeah, I, you know, just some of the names. So if, again, as if we're looking at an overall portfolio and we consider these as the up and coming, verging, uh, Uh, houses and so just you know two examples one is in Burgundy there's a a great producer of Burgundy wines that isn't as well known but um, has received wonderful reviews great scores the wines are appreciating Um, uh, Olivier Bernstein would be uh, a great uh, up-and-comer and And then we talked about Chilean wines so obviously I have to say Senya um, which is, um, you know, which is, uh, essentially a Bordeaux blend, uh, being it's uh, with that, with a little on eye at the end. Yeah. Yes. That's um,
3: year, Mike. Um, yeah, Getting great reviews. <laughs> yeah, <In-year. laughs> <laughs> on the A. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, well, I, I wanted, it, that's why I
2: wanted it spelled. Yeah. I thought Mike could pronounce it and spell it better than I could. Um, but you know, it's kind of fun to watch, uh, that, that region, um, and just to throw another one in, which isn't in any way uh, um, a, a new producer, but speaking from my own personal portfolio uh, it, it made its way into my emergency was uh, German wines by egon mueller um, which which are are priced well he's He's uh, a producer that makes amazing. Rieslings, if you like Rieslings and, uh, the prices are reasonably investment grade, but, uh, you know, obviously all, also with an opportunity to appreciate more over the long, long-term, um, because German wines are now getting more more popular from an investment perspective.
3: There you go, Rob. <laughs> so one last one, is my 2016 <laughs> sesakaya going to live up to the hype?
2: <laughs> I think it will fifteens uh, and sixteens are amazing. <laughs> so uh if you you've got a case, uh, sit on in my nineteen twenty-one barefoot and <laughs> a right? s- sitting on it's a right. <laughs> 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 Well um <laughs> so so interesting, Mike. Uh, you, you, you started with France and so you're you're also a Tuscany fan then obviously. I am a Tuscan Italian, that's upper, great tra- traditionalist. Good for you. Good we have one you. last question. Uh, well, you know, maybe one thanks last question for having me on. The technical, very technical here. question for you. Nice. Uh, yeah, there's Sure. One question. Okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this is a good question for a guy who deals and who traffics in things that are, you know, minimum okay. 50 so, years until they, they're in good.
0: <laughs> Would you rather spend a week in the past or a week in the future and why?
2: <laughs> oh that's a very interesting question a week in the past or a week of the future wow uh <laughs> i guess it would depend on which week of the past but um uh i think the answer would be a week in the future uh and really probably pick a time just to see uh uh how my kids have grown and developed over the years and and uh you know how how we are doing my wife and i and our families so i'd probably say it'd be kind of neat to uh to go into the future and see that, <laughs> hopefully, come back so that if you had to change things, you could. Uh, Where would you do that? You don't know, change well, it. thing. Well, thank you. Now is it now? Like <laughs> great. Yeah, it very insightful. That was terrific. Yeah.
3: I mean, what an optimist. True. Afterward.
2: <laughs> well, thank thanks again for having me, and I, I wanted to say, uh, you know, when when uh, when we're able, and wonderful to to get together and actually share a nice glass of wine and, and that experience beautiful. all this talking about the business and investment side of it.
3: You can count on that. Oh, <laughs> how's, how's late August for you?
2: Uh, well, we're at.
0: Uh, <laughs> we're happy I'm oh, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Atul. That was
2: very, you know, <laughs> yeah. very enlightening. All right, well, let's, let's do it. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs>